Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, so thankful to our musicians that filled in today and uh, helped lead us in worship this morning. Continue to pray for uh, Justin and Ashley as he is uh, preaching in his home church this morning down at Frink uh, by McAllister. He had an opportunity to go home and preach this morning. And uh, so pray for him and his family as they're down there uh, today and uh, just pray that God will use him in a very special way uh, in that church this morning. Uh, well, we are starting a new series today, and um, the, we're going to start a series on, on the Beatitudes of Jesus that are found at the beginning of what, is the mo- what has come to be known as the most famous of Jesus' sermons. Now, Jesus preached a lot of sermons, but he only had four that are actually recorded as actual sermons in Scripture. This is one of them, and we also know that it was a sermon that Jesus preached on more than one occasion. And the reason why we know that is because the book of Luke records the same sermon, but in a different setting. And so Jesus preached this idea or the sermon called the Sermon on the Mount uh, at least uh, on more than one occasion. As a matter of fact, here it's called the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke you could call it the Sermon on the Plain uh, because he's not up on the mountainside like it says he is here, so he's in a different uh, location. Uh, but we're going to start this series today, and the reason is, is what I've come to understand and what I see in my personal life and in the lives of people around me is that most Americans are, are searching for something, and what they're searching for is happiness. Most everyone I know wants to be happy. I really don't know very many people that enjoy not being happy. Now, I would say I have met a few (laughs) that it seemed like they only enjoyed being unhappy. You ever ever heard it? I'm not happy unless I'm unhappy. I've met a few people like that. But by and large, the majority of the people I know want to be happy. Um, And and this is evidenced by a lot of things in our culture. I mean, you can, you can tell that it's a, a very uh, popular uh, idea that people are searching for by looking at the number of books that are bestsellers that are on happiness or trying to tell you how to gain happiness or to how to break down the barriers to, that, that hinder happiness, those types of things. Uh, they're very common. We also see uh, the number of people that are looking for happiness by turning to objects such as drugs or alcohol or things like uh, pornography or illicit sex or gambling, if you will, something, anything they can grasp to give them some happiness. Some look to their money. Uh, The more money they have, they feel like the more happy they'll be until they get more money and realize they're still just as unhappy as they were. But that doesn't change anything, so they just work for more. They've got this idea, the more I have, the happier I'll be, but it always leaves them wanting. Others look for it uh, in their hobbies. They they don't care about doing, it's like their whole life are built around their hobbies. And, And that's what they use for joy in their life, whether or not it's golf or sports or fishing or whatever it is, people a lot of times look for happiness in their hobbies. Some are in toys. What I mean by toys is just items, objects that they can use for fun. Uh, Motorcycles, uh, four-wheelers, boats, things like that. And that's what they view as uh, as being able to give them happiness. Now, You could say, uh, some might say, well, you know, that's out in the world, but it's not really who we are as a church. I've actually found that to be false. I've found that 
most people in the church I know, number one, want to be happy, and number two, oftentimes look in the same places for happiness as the world does. For example, there's, there's no statistical difference. You need to hear this. There's no statistical difference between the number of men and women in our culture that are addicted to pornography outside the church as are inside the church. There's really no statistical difference even between those who gamble outside the church and those who gamble inside the church. Statistically, there's not really much difference. Now, maybe in our little church, in our little town, there's a difference, but culturally, there's no difference. And so what we found is, in, even in our churches, is a lot of times we want to be happy, but we're chronically unhappy. And it just seems like no matter where we turn, uh, no matter what we do, um, we just can't seem to find the happiness that, that we want to have, whether or not it's from a bad relationship or a bad job or bad health or a bad circumstance or whatever, Maybe it's bad financial issues. It doesn't matter. We just can't seem to find the happiness that we, we want to have. But the question is, is that what Jesus desired for us? Did Jesus desire for his followers to go through life unhappy? I, I would say absolutely not. I mean, think about it. He said, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full or to the abundance. So it, did he really mean that? Did Jesus really mean he wanted us to have an abundant life? Or was he just joking? Or was he just giving us this, this great idea, but it's all elusive and there's no way we can attain it? No, I believe that Jesus desires for his followers, for his disciples, to have happy lives. Now, y'all better take this sermon series and wrap it up and love on it because it's about the most uh, happy, healthy, and wealthy sermon series I'll ever preach, just so you know. But it's, I'm going to focus on the term happy. Jesus may not want you to be wealthy, and you may not always be healthy, but I guarantee you Jesus always wants you to be happy. He wants us to live happy lives. And that is the emphasis of the beginning of this greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, because this idea of happiness, though it so often eludes us, it often, it, it didn't just often elude us, it often eluded the people in the day of Jesus. And so in the very first major sermon he preached, as recorded here, he emphasized and on this idea of happiness. Now, some of you have read this and you go, where is the idea of happiness anywhere in here? I don't even see the word happy here. Well, we're going to talk about it and you're going to see uh, before we get into the actual Beatitudes starting next week. Today, what we're going to do is focus on some, some important facts about the Beatitudes, what they are, what they mean, who they're to, that kind of stuff. Because if we don't grasp these basic fundamental ideals then there's no way that we're ever going to attain the happiness that Jesus desires for us to have. So you can't just jump straight into the Beatitudes. You actually have to have an understanding of some things about the Beatitudes so that you're in a proper mindset to understand what he's saying. And so that's kind of what we're going to do today is look at the important facts about these Beatitudes and answer some questions uh, that we need to see. So if you have your Bibles in Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to read Matthew chapter 5, and we're just going to read the first three verses today. 
The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus said, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, I want you to note something. Um, uh, for years and years, I, I used to um, be uncomfortable on Wednesday nights uh, because my feet would start hurting, and I had a stool back there, and I'd sit on it, and I was kind of uncomfortable because I'm not standing, and I've always, to always told that you have to stand when you're preaching God's Word, but Jesus sat <laughs> when he talked. I just want y'all to notice that, uh, so I'll never feel bad about that again. But anyway, it says that he was seated, and his disciples came to him. Now listen to what he said in verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to stop right there today. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you this morning to go to the Lord in prayer with me as we begin this series. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray today as we study it that you would give us the understanding and the insight that we need that we may be able to adequately and accurately apply this message to our lives. Father, there are so many misconceptions about the Sermon on the Mount. There's so many misconceptions about these Beatitudes, what they're for, who they're for, those kind of things. But Father, your word is really clear. And I pray that you would speak to us in this series and that the happiness that has long eluded us, you would instill in our hearts and our lives through your word that you would receive the glory for it and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are a few things, that, as I said, we need to see before we jump straight into the Beatitudes so we can have a proper understanding of what's going on here. The first thing that I want you to see, now if you're following your notes in your bulletin, uh, they're a little bit different than the notes that are on the screen because I changed the order. So the bulletin is out of order. The screen is in order, okay? Uh, but they're the same points. I just switched the order around. The first thing that I want you to see this morning, if we're going to accurately grasp the idea of the Beatitudes, is I want you to see the audience. I want you to see who he's talking to. The first question we have to ask ourselves when you look at anything in Scripture is who is this message to? One of the problems we have in, in theological, uh, one of the theological problems we have in the church today, let me say it that way, is that oftentimes when we read a text, we immediately jump to what does this mean for me, right? And we take and we apply verses straight to us without any, any thinking or any idea of the context of which it's written. I'll give you an example. It's one of my pet peeves. The, uh, Alyssa's not here to make fun of me today, but Philippians 4, 16, I can do all things. Is it 16 or 13? Anyway, what is it? 13, thank you. See, I even got it wrong. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Almost every athlete I know is their favorite verse of Scripture, but they have no idea what that's talking about. Because Philippians 4.13 is not talking about sports. As a matter of fact, Philippians 4 is talking about contentment, how to be content. And it's elusive, and it's hard to be content. But he says, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It has everything to do with content and nothing to do with I can do whatever I want, okay? Because Christ will give me the strength. So what I mean by that is so sometimes we, we take verses and we immediately jump to us. But if you really want to gain understanding, and I've said this before, and you can write it down again if you haven't before, but there are three questions that always have to be asked, and they need to be asked in this order whenever you're going to look at Scripture. Number one, you need to ask who, or, or who was this written to, okay? Or what did this mean then? Either way, however you want to write it. 
Who is it written to and what does it mean then, in that moment? The second question is, what does this always mean? That's taken into context the things around it and other verses of Scripture, okay? Because Scripture won't say one thing in one area and something else somewhere else, and the, they, they, don't, they don't conflict. Scripture has a unity to it. And so what does this always mean? And then the third question, which is the one we like to start with, what does this mean for me? Okay, And so this morning, to start us out accurately, I want us to look at the context. I want us to see who he's talking to. And this is going to be a really important point for us. Not just these Beatitudes, but the whole Sermon on the Mount. Who's he talking to? Who are these instructions for? Now, there are some who think that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are for everyone. Now, when I say everyone, I mean everyone. Lost people save people. Okay, Their, their idea is that this is kind of the charter for world peace. That if, if, if we want to have world peace, then everyone needs to adhere to these Beatitudes, okay? There are others who think that the Beatitudes in particular are the only gospel that you need. That there's really no need for anything else in Scripture. It's the only aspect of Scripture that's important. It's the only aspect of Scripture that is necessary. And I've always found that interesting because nowhere in the Beatitudes is the gospel given at all. But their idea is that this is the most important and most necessary aspect because our only hope is to live according to these rules. There are others who think that it is not for anyone. And their idea is that they're so unattainable, they're so impossible to live by, there's no possible way any of us could ever live by these, not only the Beatitudes, but the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, because let me tell you, the Sermon on the Mount takes the Ten Commandments to the nth degree. See, they were used to things like, don't murder. <laughs> and Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You see, they, they'd heard, don't commit adultery. And he says, if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. He takes the commandments and makes them harder. And so their idea is, we couldn't live up to the Ten Commandments. There's no way we can live up to these. So they're really not for anyone, but what they do is they maybe give us an example of what life will be like later, maybe in heaven or in the millennial reign of Jesus, which if you're in our Wednesday night studies, we'll be talking about the millennial reign of Christ in about three or four weeks. So anyway, so there's all these different thoughts about who it's written to, what it means, those kind of things. But to answer the question of who this is for, you just really need to see who the audience is. So look at it in verse 1 again. The Bible says in chapter 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he, being Jesus, went up on the mountainside, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. His, that's the key. His disciples came to him. Now, some think when they see that term, the disciples coming to him, they think that's only the 12 disciples. Not all the disciples, but just 12 disciples, the called, if you will, the, the, the 12 that were called by name by Jesus to follow him, also known as the apostles of Christ. And, and there are times where the 12 are the only ones he's talking to. But what you need, and I need to know this morning, is that in every time in Scripture where we're told that Jesus specifically addresses the apostles or those specific disciples that were called, it always notates that by saying the 12. Like he talked to the 12. But that's not mentioned here. And what we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt when this was penned, when Jesus preached this verse, is number one, only four disciples had been called at this point. According to chapter 4, 
of Matthew, the only disciples that had been called when he preached this message by name were the four fishermen, Andrew, Simon Peter, John, and James, the sons of thunder. The other disciples hadn't even been called yet, only those four. So is he only talking about those four? No, he's talking to all disciples. See, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. You do know that, right? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus commissioned 70 disciples. In Acts chapter 1, when, uh, when the early church was meeting and they, the disciples realized that Judas had betrayed Christ, he had hung himself, and he died, and they were going to need to replace Judas as a disciple, the Bible says specifically in Acts chapter 1 that the disciples of Christ gathered together, and it specifically said, and 120 names were listed. That means in that room, when they elected uh, the new dis uh, disciple to take over for Judas, there were 120 people there to decide that. So there were way more followers, disciples of Jesus than the actual 12. And if you look in chapter 7, if you want to turn there, you can real quick. Look at chapter 7 at the very end of this sermon, which is all one sermon all at once. Look at what he says at the very end in Matthew 7, verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught at them as one having authority, not as scribes. The people taught them. See, he was talking to all of the disciples, not to just a specific group of people. Now, this is a vitally important truth, because if Jesus was only talking to the 12, then one could easily say, these aren't for me. These are for a set group of people. They could say maybe it was just for them, the 12. They might be able to say, well, it's just for those that are closest to Jesus. You know, the quote, good Christians of today. They could say, well, you know, the 12 are the apostles. We know from Scripture that God gave first the apostles, then the prophets, then the teachers and the pastors. So maybe it's the ministers of today, but not everyone. You see, if he's just talking to a set group, one could easily dismiss this and say, these aren't for me. I don't have to live by them. The, the, the points that are going to be made have nothing to do with me. But Jesus is talking to all of his followers, and that tells us that the truths that, have, that are contained in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount are for every follower of Christ, not just for a set group of people. Okay, that's the first thing. Because if you don't understand that they're for everyone... That which includes, by the way, you, if you're a follower of Christ, then you will never understand the richness and the significance of what these mean to you as a follower. So number one, the audience is the disciples, all of them, which includes you if you're a follower of Christ. Number two, the purpose. When I began this series earlier and I was talking about happiness and how we desire happiness in our culture and in our churches, but it often, so often eludes us, but Jesus wants us to be happy. He may not want you to be healthy, meaning you may have bad health, and he may not desire for you to be wealthy, which means he's not going to give you a lot of monetary goods. I do promise you this, Jesus wants to be happy. I said that earlier, and some of you have read these Beatitudes before, and you go, I don't understand how happiness has anything to do with the Beatitudes whatsoever. And the reason is, is because we don't understand what is really being taught here originally. And so the second thing I want you to see is the purpose of the actual Beatitudes. See, Jesus, when he taught, he had a purpose for everything he taught. 
Every time Jesus taught something, there was a specific purpose that he had for it. In the Beatitudes, you don't have to look very far to find out what that purpose is. Because in the Beatitude, at the beginning of each one, they all start with the same thing. Blessed are those in every one. Blessed are those. Now, the key to that is the word blessed. Okay, the key to that is the word blessed. Now, the Greek word uh, blessed that is used here is makarios. Okay, now, none of you really care about that, but that's the Greek word that's used here, which literally means happy. That's how come I know he wants us to be happy. That's how come some translations, even newer translations, I think the New Living Translation does this, even translates it as happy are those. Happy are those. Because the word blessed means happy. However, and we need to get this, at first sight, that would seem like Jesus is simply giving the foundation for happiness, and he is. However, we need to understand that happiness in the day of Christ and happiness as we define it today are not the same. What do I mean by that? Well, in our day, happiness is tied to our circumstance. Like, we would agree with that. When our circumstances are good, we're happy. When our health is good, we're happy. When our finances are good, we're happy. When our families are good, we're happy. When things are going well in our lives, we're happy. But when our circumstances change, we're not so happy, right? Like, I don't know very many people that suffer physically that are happy. It just doesn't seem to fit. Or when someone loses their job, unless they, I said this several weeks ago, unless they really didn't want to work there, they're not all that happy. If someone goes bankrupt, they're not happy. We define happiness or our happiness is literally dictated by our circumstance. Good circumstances, happy. Bad circumstances, not so much. But in Jesus' day, happiness meant joy regardless of circumstance. And here's how I know that. The, the Greek word that I told you that was translated blessed in our, our scripture that means happy, that makarios, in that culture, that word was only used particularly to describe the happy state of the, quote, gods of that culture. Only the gods could have happiness in spite of circumstance. You see, they, the, the Greek culture has a lot of gods. The Roman culture has gods for everything. Look at Paul when he, when he goes in and, and talks to this, this one city that's very religious. He even says, I perceive that you're very religious. And they have a god for everything. They even have one called to the unknown god, just in case they might miss one. That culture was very religious. And it was thought that the only person or the only people that could be truly happy regardless of their circumstance would have to be a God because they were just like you and I. There's no difference between them and us. Their happiness was tied to their circumstances too. And so this word was only used to describe the happiness of the gods of the day. But here's Jesus using it about them. So now Jesus all of a sudden is telling them no, that happiness has nothing to do with the gods. You, my followers, can be happy in spite of your circumstances. I want you to think about that. 
Matter of fact, I almost, I almost titled this series Upside Down. Think about that. That is completely upside down to the way we think. We think, again, happiness because of circumstance. And Jesus is saying, no, happiness in spite of circumstance, and you can have that. That's what he's teaching. Now, that's an incredible thought right off the bat. And that's the purpose of the Beatitudes. He's giving us the foundation for happiness, but not our happiness that we base off our circumstance. He's giving us the foundations for a happiness that would not be able to be changed because of our circumstances, because it's a happiness that our circumstances don't dictate. That's the purpose of the Beatitude. He wants them, he wants to tell them, and he does tell them how they can experience true happiness. And he's not only telling them that, but he also tells them and going to tell them where true happiness comes from. Not just that you can experience, but where it's going to come from. But finding this kind of happiness won't come easy. And before we go into the Beatitudes starting next week, you need to hear this. You're going to have some barriers to finding this kind of happiness in your life. Guaranteed. And here's how I know. Because the disciples that he's talking to had barriers. And if you want to see the barriers, you have to understand the third thing, and that's the setting. The things that are going on in that culture of the day. You see, in that day, there's no different than in our day. They had a lot of problems. You see, Jesus, he, he lived and taught and ministered and was crucified, died, and was resurrected in the first century Judea. That's where he was. Especially when he taught this, he was in Judea. And, and when this was going on, and when he was doing his ministry, there were all kinds of barriers to the disciples finding true happiness. I'll give you some. Number one, they were, they were ruled by a tyrannical military government. The government of their day was tyrannical, meaning it was very oppressive, very cruel, very mean. They took by force, they kept by force, and they forced you to do anything and everything they wanted you to do, and you didn't really have any freedom to do whatever you want. Now, the only thing that we have even remotely close to this in our, in our world today would be a, a government like North Korea or Iran. They're a tyrannical government. They do what they want, and if you don't do what they want, they're free to punish you however they want, okay? We see that later in the first century church because they just, uh, they, they, under Nero, they just come down on the Christians hard, and they, and they kill them, and they have no rights as Christians because the Christians wouldn't in, embrace all the gods of the day. The Christians believed there was one God and one Savior, Jesus Christ, and they couldn't say that all the gods were equal, and so they had all their rights strict, stripped completely away from them. That's the culture they're living in, a tyrannical military government. They also were treated as possessions by the Romans. The Romans had taken control of their land and had taken control of their people. They were treated as possessions. Slavery was rampant. As a matter of fact, there were three slaves, three Jewish slaves for every one Jewish free person in that culture. They, there were racial prejudices that existed, not just between uh, the Romans and the Jews. The Jews themselves had prejudices against one another. For example, there were the Sadducees who denied the bodily or the fact that there'd be a resurrection. They denied the oral traditions of the law. They just focused basically on the written law. 
And then there were the Pharisees, who way more emphasized the oral traditions of man and less emphasized the written moral law of God, and those two groups didn't get along. And then there was the Samaritans and the Jews, and they didn't get along. That's why, if you've ever read the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's a slap in the face to the Jews, that the Samaritan would stop and give help. Because the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. Samaritans worshipped one way. They had one thought of belief. Jews wanted nothing to do with them. They were completely separate. They didn't like each other. So there was these racial prejudices that existed. Sounds a lot like our culture, just a little bit different. I mean, we may not be ran by a tyrannical military-style government, but you can't and I can't disagree that um, there's racial prejudices today that we're divided today in our culture. Um, oh, I, I skipped this one. Taxes consumed a third of their income. <laughs> I, th I think it consumes a little more of ours. I mean, so you can just see there was all kinds of problems. And because there were problems, there were many different ways people looked at how to handle these and find happiness in spite of them. There were all kinds of different theologies on, okay, we have these problems, but how do we find happiness in spite of them? There were some that said, we'll find happiness only if we take back by force. That was the zealots. They were the, the military people of the Jewish day that you're not going to find happiness and we, unless we take back by force everything that was taken from, from us. Then you had some that said, well, you know what? There's not really anything we can do. So if you want to find happiness in this life, then just negotiate the best deal you can with those in charge of you and hope for the best and you'll find happiness. There were some in that day, that, by the way, that was the Sadducees' idea. There were some in that day that thought, you know what? We're only going to find happiness if we adhere strictly to the oral law that was given to us by our rabbis and our teachers, and that was the Pharisees. The only way you and I were going to be happy was in strictly obeying everything that the rabbis, the teachers of the day, taught them. So you can see the people would have been confused, despaired, fear, not just because of the, the situations in their culture, but because of all the different messages that were thrown at them about how to gain happiness. Sounds a lot like our culture. Our culture has lots of problems where happiness seems to evade us. If, by the way, if, if, you, if you want our government and our, our, everything about our government to provide you happiness, you ain't never going to have true happiness. no matter. And, that, and they weren't either. And so what do we do? And then you have some going, well, if you'll do this, you'll find happiness. If you'll do this, you'll find happiness. Sounds like all those self-help books that you can get. Everybody's got an answer for something. There's, here's, do this, you'll be happy. Do this, you'll be happy. Cut this out of your life, you'll be happy. It's just all this stuff. And so you can imagine the confusion in their life, just like it is in our life, on how we can find happiness. And in the midst of this, a lowly Galilean carpenter named Jesus climbed up on a hillside, sat down, his disciples came to him, and he tells them right off, Happy are you. Happy in spite of all of that are you. That's the whole reason for everything is he wanted to teach them happiness. And there were barriers. For them, it was their culture. It was the confusing teachings of the day. And we need to know that because no matter how hard your situation is or how bad your situation is, or no matter what kind of circumstances come your way, those are all barriers to finding happiness. And you're going to have to overcome them just the way they did, and you're going to find out how to overcome them when we actually get into the Beatitudes. And then the last thing I want us to see, and we'll close, 
before we really jump in next week on the actual Beatitudes, I want you to see real quick the significance of the Beatitudes. You know, there's so many different ways people view them. Some view the Beatitudes as the end-all, end-all of everything. I've told you that they believe it's the gospel. They don't need anything else. There's other... Excuse me, there's others that kind of treat the Beatitudes as the bubonic plague. They don't want to hear about them. They don't want to talk about them because in their mind, it's like, I can't do that. I know I can't. I've tried to live that way. I've tried to do this. I can't add up. I never, and so they, they, there's no way I can do it. So I don't even want to talk about them. And, and there's all these different ways people view the significance of this. Some view them as no significant. Some view it as maybe too significant. But the truth is, they miss the actual significance of the Beatitudes. You know, in theology, there's two groups of extremes. There's liberal theologians, just like there's liberal politicians. And then there's far-right theologians, just like there's far-right politicians. Liberal theologians are those who, again, think that the Beatitudes are the gospel. It's the only necessary thing they need to know because our only hope is to live by these rules. And then you have the far other extreme, which view, view the Beatitudes as really actually meaningless because they're only for the people that were standing there in the moment. As a matter of fact, I had a far-right uh, far right theologian in seminary. Give you this story real quick, kind of show you what I mean by far-right theologian. What they do is for fear of misinterpreting scripture. I've already said context is important, but they take that context and they take it to the extreme. And what they do is, is they take verses of scripture and they basically say, unless it's an all-encompassing scripture, then that's verses are only for those people. And the emphasis that they, he used on that was John 14, 26. John, John chapter 14 starts one of Jesus's other sermons. It's called the farewell farewell discourse, and Jesus has given last instructions to his disciples, his followers, in the upper room. And in that text, or in that teaching, he tells them a really neat verse of scripture about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all things and remind you of all things that I have taught you. A far-right theologian takes that verse and says that that verse cannot be used by anyone except those that were in that upper room because no one else was there. It was to a specific group of people. Therefore, it does not apply to you and I. So that's what he taught. And then in our discussion, we had to agree or disagree. I disagreed and got brought under enormous attack, not just by my professor, but by my other students. And I simply just asked a couple questions. I just said, if that's true, and the Holy Spirit is only intended to teach all and remind all that were in that room that Jesus had taught, then what do you do with Mark who penned a gospel who wasn't in that room? What do you do with Paul who's considered the apostle to the Gentiles, who definitely wasn't in that room, yet penned a huge portion of our New Testament. What do you do with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? This says all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What do you do with those texts? That's what I mean. There's far right, there's far left, however, in theology in this, and the Beatitudes fall in there, and there's so many different 
views on this, and when you go to those extremes, you miss the significance. And the real significance is this. It's real simple. Jesus desires for his followers to have true happiness in spite of their circumstance. He wants them to have a happiness that's unshakable by the circumstance they encounter because their circumstances don't dictate this kind of happiness. He desires for his, this is the significance, he desires for his disciples to be different. He desires for his disciples to be different. That's the significance of the Beatitudes.